Hor is the god of vengeance and poetic justice. The Doombringer and his faith search out those who have gone unpunished and enact vigilante retribution fitting to the wrong done. I'm Ben Dignan, and welcome once again to Religion in the Realms. Titles Hor goes by the following titles The Doombringer, Lord of Three Thunders, The Poet of Justice, and The Hurler of Thunders. Though listed as the Doombringer's alias, the name Asurin may as well be referred to as his second name. In reality, though, it was the original proper name this god went by upon arrival in the Forgotten Realms long, long ago. In the Inner Sea lands, primarily in the Old Empire lands of Unther, Chesenta, and Moholrand, the Doombringer is still called Asurin, or in full he may be called Asurin of the Three Thunders. Portfolio and Domains The Doombringer holds the portfolios of Revenge, Retribution, and Poetic Justice. The Doombringer's suggested domain for 5th edition is War. Appearance and Manifestations The Doombringer is commonly depicted as a tall and gaunt human man. He sports a dark expression, dark long hair with ringlets, and a goatee stylized to a point. His eyes are jet black in color. He wears the rich garments of a noble or well-to-do merchant. Though the style of these garments varies from that of Unther, Chesenta, or Western Faerun. He seems to always be worn down and sports some vicious looking scars not healed properly from the battles he has had with Anher and Raman in the past. The Doombringer has two favored weapons. The first is the infinite store of javelins he has on his back. Collectively, he calls these javelins Retribution Sting. These javelins function just like javelins of lightning. He also favors a large broadsword that he calls Hand of Retribution. The Doombringer chooses to go without armor, save a set of golden bracers. In battle, he wields his broadsword in his right hand and throws javelins of lightning with his left. Any javelin that misses the target fizzles away into nothing. The Doombringer has two known manifestations. The first is his most well-known, three rolls of thunder upon someone meeting a fitting and poetic fate due to their past actions. The second manifestation is a spectral hand seen by the person meeting their punishment, though loved ones of the victim in the vicinity may spot the hand as well. It is a common turn of phrase in the realms that those who meet such a fate feel, quote, the hand of horror. The Doombringer makes use of the following creatures to communicate his approval, disapproval, or aid his mortal followers. Aerial servants, curse, fears, harlas, haunts, invisible stalkers, justice incarnates, cares or cares, I'm not sure on the pronunciation of that one, living steels, revenants, lianan shi, and maroots. 
The Doombringer can also manifest items on the Prime Material to show his favor or disfavor. The appearance of red gemstones cut into teardrop shapes marks his favor. His disfavor is marked by the appearance of a powdered Laryl's Tear gemstone. Laryl's Tears are modeled after Borelonite in our real world. As you can probably gather from the name, the gem is named after Laryl Silverhand. Though it must be said, Laryl has no connections with the Doombringer. Abilities Confusingly, the Doomringer is listed as a demigod in the first edition campaign setting box set. Products released for the first edition era of the realms predate the time of troubles. Later, second edition sources state that the Doombringer was a lesser power pre-time of troubles. I default to assuming the later sources correct in this instance. Past the time of troubles, through the rest of second edition, and then the 3rd edition realms, he fell in rank to that of a demigod. We will eventually talk about the Doombringer's history, and what transpired to cause such a demotion. With the new deific ranks brought in 4th edition, he was given the rank of Exarch, though the powers and status of a demigod and Exarch are quite similar. Like most deities in the Forgotten Realms, we are left to guess to what rank a deity may hold in 5th edition. I feel quite confident in stating that Doombringer would fall within the rank of a lesser god in this edition's hierarchy. The Doombringer has no stat block for himself. However, there is an avatar stat block for him in 2nd edition's Powers and Pantheons. I have chosen select elements from that stat block to talk about. Just be cognizant of the fact that I may mention 2nd edition terms that are unknown in the present 5th edition game. The avatar of the Doomringer is able to cast spells from any sphere or school of magic, though there is a preference for those spells that come from the weather and charm spheres, then a preference for those spells that come from the split illusion slash phantasm school of magic as well. These different spells allow the Doombringer's avatar to better enact his poetic justice upon his victims. The Doombringer's avatar has a strong proficiency with spells that grasp, say like Bigby's hand. This superior proficiency allows three such grasping spells to be concentrated upon, all the while the avatar can cast other spells and engage in physical combat. The Doombringer's tie to electricity and lightning allow his avatar the ability to cast any such electrical elemental spells without fail even after exhausting all available spell slots. The Avatar's signature ability is their powerful thunderclaps, which function just like the second edition spell called Great Shout. The Avatar can cause such a thunderclap with a clap of the hands or a stomp of the foot. This thunderclap can be used once per round. Should the Avatar get off these thunderclaps in three successive rounds at the same opponent, that opponent falls prey to a fitting punishment to the greatest injustice committed by that individual. This punishment is determined by the DM in the moment. Personal History In order to discuss the Doombringer's history in Faerun, we must first start back in the past when deities from another world 
were allowed to be worshipped and express their influence on a new world. Be cognizant that this is going to be quite the tangent, though I think it is important to detail it out, and hopefully it is interesting enough. Long ago, the Emiskari Empire suffered a major setback after the population was decimated by a plague. Powerful spellcasters would then cast and form gates into another prime material world to bring back slaves in negative 4,366 DR. Now, it is never overtly stated from what I understand, but it is clear that the Emiskari opened up gates to our world, Earth, in our ancient past. A series of gates opened in our past to steal Babylonian slaves. Then another series of gates opened to steal Egyptian slaves. The Amaskari would then shut these gates behind them. Over time, these two populations would intermingle and form families creating the Mulan ethnicity that is still alive and well in present-day Faerun. The Emiskari tried to stop the Mulani people from worshipping the powers from their homeworld, but they were never able to curtail or stop it. Eo, the overgod of realm space, was all too aware of these prayers and sought a way for them to be answered. Eo reached out to the god Ptah, who had a presence in other crystal spheres of the multiverse. Through Ptah, both pantheons still worshipped by the Mulani would be brought to hold influence in Faerun in negative 2489 DR. These pantheons would go on to be called the Untheric and Mohorandi pantheons respectively. Though there was a catch. When the Emiskari sealed the gates behind them, they made a point to create a barrier on Toril that would disallow the Mulani's gods to affect realm space in any capacity. To get around this, these Mulani gods siphoned a significant portion of their power into powerful avatar forms called manifestations, that then traveled across wild space to come to reside on the surface of Toril. An artifact known as the Beacon of Light allowed this collection of avatars to arrive on Toril successfully. These manifestations then partitioned off some of their power to form entities known as incarnations. These can be considered lesser and mortal forms of your otherwise typical avatar. Through these incarnations, the Mulani slaves were reunited with their pantheons. With the divine backing, the Mulani slaves rose up in rebellion in negative 2,488 DR. The Emiskari, though caught off guard, were able to turn the war in their favor. That was until the true forms of the avatars, the manifestations, emerged and finished off the Emiskari once and for all. The Emiskari Empire soon collapsed as a wave of damaging magic swept across their former realm, creating the present-day Roran Desert. The Mulani who went with Ray settled and intermingled with the then-native Tarami people on the eastern shore of the Lamber Sea. Here the nation of Mohorand was created. The Mulani who went with Enlil drove out the native Tarami people and formed Unther 
on the western shore of the Alamber Sea. The manifestations retreated into hiding while their lesser forms, these incarnations, would go on to influence and lead in Mohorand and Unther. The barrier the Emiskari put in place still stood and the manifestations still needed a way to bring the barrier down or a way around it. As time went on, incarnations would be destroyed, but over time, the incarnations would be born eventually in a new human form. Starting in negative 1967 DR, Unther and Mohorand would fight a series of wars against one another, but every time the manifestations would make themselves known to form a new truce. Come negative 1081 DR, any plans these manifestations had were thrown for a loop. The then last remaining Emiskari Arcanist had incited the wizards of both Unther and Mohorand into open rebellion beginning in negative 1087 DR. He was eventually captured, though before his execution he opened a gate to a then unheard of world. For five years this gate went unused. That was until in negative 1076 DR, orcs from this unheard of world poured through with conquest and plunder on their minds. The manifestations made themselves apparent to combat this new force. However, the devout among the orcs were able to summon forth the avatars of their respective pantheon. Several of the manifestations in both the Untheric and Mohorandi pantheons were destroyed in the Orc Gate War. The avatars of the Orc powers, while not destroyed, were eventually defeated and driven out by the combined might of Unther and Mohorand in negative 1069 DR. The destroyed manifestations were able to leave part of their immense power behind for their fellows to absorb. In negative 734 DR, Enlil would abdicate his position at the head of the Untheric pantheon as his son Gilgim took over. The Doombringer has long existed in the realms, but was known first as a Surin. He was a member of the Untheric pantheon. As time went on, Asurin's worship would find a position. As time went on, Asurin's worship would find a place in neighboring Chisenta. Around 400 DR, Rahman, a rival of Asurin, would eventually defeat and expel Asurin and his clergy from the lands of Unther. Though Asurin's influence still remained in Chisenta, where he is still referred to by his original name. Specifically, it has remained strong in the Chesentan cities of Akanax and Mukhtar. Even still, Asurin's presence began to reduce as Chesentan mercenaries who spent time in Mohorand brought with them the faith of Anher from the Mohorandi pantheon. The older members of martial groups in these cities were still faithful to the Doombringer, but their lessers had adopted the Mohorandi god of war. Ao allowed Asurin to attempt to gain worshippers within the sphere of influence of the Faerunian pantheon. In exchange, Mistra was allowed to spread her influence in the lands of Unther. Rather than call himself Asurin throughout the rest of Faerun, he adopted the new name of Hor, 
As time wore on in Unther, Gilgim would become a tyrannical leader and Unther would suffer under him. All save Rahman and Ishtar stayed while the other members of the Untheric pantheon left the realms altogether. The time of troubles of 1358 Dale Reckoning proved fortuitous for the Doombringer as he saw an opportunity to return to Unther and kill his rival Rahman. The Doombringer first appeared in Akanox, where he went on to possess the body of King Hapartes, the ruler of that particular city-state. Then he would return to a cache of weapons hidden in the Mounts of Thay. I'm a little unclear whether it was the avatar of the Doombringer who hid this cache originally or King Hapartes himself. In any case, the Doombringer avoided the machinations of a Red Wizard who went by the title of the Masked One. This Masked One aimed to claim godhood for themselves by hunting the Doombringer. Under the guise of King Hapartes, he rallied the army of Akanax and hired on many mercenaries to right former wrongs done to him. This army fought the forces of other Chesentan city-states, Simbar, Surinar, and Lufchek. Winning these battles in succession, many within Chesenta began turning their favor towards the Doombringer rather than Rahman. This effectively forced Rahman to respond and both Doombringer and Rahman would come to blows. Rahman attempted to blast the Doombringer with three bolts of powerful lightning. The Doombringer, in return, wove his own spell, causing the third bolt of lightning to reflect back at Rahman and kill him. Though successful in killing Rahman, the dying Rahman had enough time to gift his respective portfolio to Anher, the Mohorandi god of war. Newly empowered, Anher brought his own fighting force together to defend against the Doombringer's forces. Many Chisentin mercenaries then turned their worship towards Anher instead. The Doombringer was denied his full vengeance, and yet again he was driven out of Unther a second time. For a while after the Time of Troubles, the Doombringer's influence was not felt throughout Faerun. Ever since, Hor has had another rival in Anhur that he has declared vengeance over. With so many inches Senta turning away from the Doombringer, where he is known as a Surin in favor of Anhur, the Doombringer saw a reduction in deific rank from a lesser power to that of a demi-power post-time of troubles. Tiamat reappeared again in the realms before the outset of the Time of Troubles. Gilgim engaged in a battle that claimed both of them, though Tiamat would be able to survive this fate through other means, but that's a whole other story. Effectively, the Untheric pantheon went on to collapse, and then Unther as a whole was left in a terrible state. The end of the Time of Troubles also saw Eo disperse the old Amaskari Divine Barrier himself. Though with no Untheric pantheon, this only served to benefit the Mulhorandi pantheon. Though in some respects, I imagine this proved a boon to the Doombringer, who was allowed to connect directly back with his former self. After the spell plague of 1385 Dale Reckoning, Bane would bring the Doombringer under his rule. And for a time, Hor served Bane. Though it would appear post-Second Sundering, 
this is no longer the case. The spell plague that kicked off in 1385 Dale Reckoning shunted much of Unther onto Toril's twin world of Abir. Dragonborn dominated lands native to Abir swapped places with this divided Unther. The Dragonborn would call their new nation in the realms Tymanther. During the displaced Unther's century upon Abir, Gilgim was reincarnated and rallied the Untheric people to maintain the defense and grow strong. Post-Second Sundering, this displaced portion of Unther returned to its original place on Toril. Now Gilgim aims to regain back stolen lands from the Dragonborn and Mohorandi who live within Unther's former borders. How the Doombringer feels about this development is unsaid. That is, if he has any interest for a reemergence in Unther at all. Personality With the exception of 4th edition, Hor is listed as a lawful neutral god across all editions. With no alignment of lawful neutral in 4th edition's alternative alignment system, the Doombringer was given the evil alignment. The Doombringer is a morose power. He is quick to respond with violence and has a dark sense of humor. He quite often dwells upon his own vengeance against the Mahorandi deity Anhur, who Hor sees standing in his rightful place. The Doombringer also has not forgotten how he was spurned by the Untheric pantheon and still harbors resentment and a desire to get back at them. He is a power with an unsettling, dry laugh and a fascination with the downfall of those doomed to a certain fate. Personal Realms In the Great Wheel cosmological model used in 1st edition, 2nd edition, and is the assumed default model for 5th edition Forgotten Realms, the Doombringer resides on the lawful neutral outer plane of Mechanus. His divine realm is called the Doom Court. Unfortunately, no further information about this realm is given specific to the Great Wheel model. The outer plane of Mechanus only consists of a singular layer populated by an endless array of gears. These gears run the gamut of size. At one end of the spectrum are continent-sized gears supporting entire realms. At the other end are minuscule gears seen only by the most perceptive of beings. But these gears all turn at all times, some slowly, others fast. To what end they turn, people are unsure, but they move for an unknown purpose, save one that may be known by Primus, ruler over the plain, and the Modrons. Whatever the case, they are all interconnected and affect one another over a grand scale. The petitioners on Mechanus look like they did during their days on the Prime Material, with some stylization in their dress based upon the preferences of the power that they serve. Though I did not come across any mention of what form the Doombringer's petitioners take on. Whatever the case, these petitioners are a serious lot who seem to express little to no emotion. The faces of the gears are naturally devoid of life. Though petitioners who come to reside here across the D&D universe have been able to foster vegetation of all types. Upon Mechanus, no illusion or wild magic functions as it fizzles out upon being cast. Travel around Mechanus is said to be best accomplished through the labyrinthine portal, 
a complex network of portals that link the various realms and larger gear cogs throughout Mechanus. In the World Tree cosmological model used for 3rd edition Forgotten Realms, the Doombringer resides on the plane of the Barons of Doom and Despair. The Barons are inhospitable, bleak, and vastly empty of life and joy. Here the plains landscape consists only of black sand, plains of granite, and the occasional canyon wrangled with cliffs made of obsidian. Though there are areas of inhospitable tundra and ice, no sun shines here as permanent black clouds hang above while red sky glows in behind them. Petitioners who arrive on the barrens are turned into larvae. These are creatures medium in size, with worm-like bodies who retain the form of their mortal heads. Much like in the Great Wheel, the Doombringer's divine realm on the barrens is called the Doom Court. All around the palace at the center of this realm are a multitude of heads placed on pikes. Each of these heads represents someone who slighted the Doombringer and eventually got their comeuppance. The palace, the Doom Court itself, is a dour but polished structure. The walls on the inside are coated in a layer of frost. Every footfall through the court echoes much louder than it should. At least when this realm was described in 3rd edition, the realm was said to be shrinking in response to the Doombringer's loss of worshippers down on Faerun. Within the 4th edition cosmological model, the Doombringer resides on the domain known as Banehold. Here, Bane is the superior governing power. The sky is lit by a constant pale green light. Bane has then divided his domain up into fiefs for each of the powers beneath him to control. Outside of the controlled fiefs is a landscape of hard scrabble, obsidian, sand, and pitted iron. Many ruins of forts and castles dot the land. The sky in these ungoverned lands is instead red, with the occasional black storm that passes overhead. These desolate lands Bane keeps in his domain to remind the powers beneath him what may come of their own holdings should they disobey him. Allies and Allegiances The Doombringer has an alliance with Bashaba, the goddess of misfortune. The two of them share the goal of dishing out bad luck to those who truly deserve it. For a time, post-time of troubles at least, Shar and Tyr tried to win the Doombringer over to their respective sides. Since the Doombringer and Shar share being bitter in common, Shar saw an entity to easily sway to further fall into hopelessness. With a diminished Doombringer, Shar could then claim the portfolio of revenge, which she desires for herself. On the flip side, Tyr saw an opportunity to convince the Doombringer to lean further into his portfolio of poetic justice. I have to speculate that this politicking fell away post-spell plague as the Doombringer came under Bane's sway. Not only that, Tyr wasn't around at that time either. But who's to say whether this intrigue has picked up once more post-second sundering? The Doombringer is then mentioned to be an ally of Balls, though this comes from a second edition source. I have to wonder if the Doombringer views Ball the same way given Ball's past during and after the Second Sundering. Not really fitting the role as an enemy or foe, 
Taimora has a unique relationship with the Doombringer that bearers mention still. At one time, the Doombringer may see Taimora as an ally as he attempts to receive good fortune in some endeavor or task, while at other times he may curse Taimora's very name for past events. Outside of the Faerunian pantheon, the Doombringer is listed out to be an ally of the drow goddess Kirinsali. However, in reading Kirinsali's entry in 2nd edition's Demi-Human Deities, it rather sounds like Hor and her possibly may make some sort of alliance, rather than it being confirmed. Kirinsali is primarily known as the chaotic evil drow goddess of undeath, but she holds vengeance as another of her portfolios. Another ally outside the Faerunian pantheon is the chaotic neutral elven demigod Severash, who is deeply tied to vengeance given this elven power's hatred of the drow. Enemies The Doombringer has two listed foes. The first is his long-deceased rival, Rahman. His second foe is Anher, the Mohorati god who was gifted Rahman's portfolio soon after the Doombringer had killed Rahman during the Time of Troubles. Symbols In the Faerunian pantheon, the Doombringer's faith has four known symbols. The first symbol is a hand wearing a black glove holding onto a coin. The coin displays a two-faced human head. The second symbol is just an image of the aforementioned coin. The third is three lightning bolts, though how they are arranged is not said. The fourth and final symbol listed for the Doombringer is three rolls of thunder, though I don't know how that would be artistically portrayed. The source books never mention it. Central Dogma From Faiths and Pantheons, a third edition supplement. Quote, Uphold true and fitting justice and maintain the spirit of the law not the letter of the law. Fitting recompense will always accrue for one's actions. Violence will meet violence, and evil pay back evil. But good will also come to those who do good. Walk the line of the Doombringer's teachings, seeking retribution, but do not fall into the trap of pursuing evil acts for evil's sake, for that way is seductive and leads only to one's downfall. Vengeance must be sought for all injustices, and all punishments must fit the crime. Revenge is sweetest when it is sharpened with irony. All attacks must be avenged. Those who do not respond to attacks against their person or that which they hold dear only invite future attacks. Presence of the Faith The Doombringer's clerics tend to hold an alignment of lawful evil, lawful neutral, or lawful good. His usual worshippers tend to be assassins, warriors, a significant number of half-orcs, rogues, and those seeking vengeance and retribution in some capacity. The Doombringer's worship is usually not set to ordained and repeated ritual. Rather, he is a power invoked whenever someone seeks out vengeance. In the northwestern regions of Faerun, the Doombringer's faithful view him more as a dispenser of poetic justice. Assassins and bounty hunters will make a suitable offering to him before pursuing their quarry. The truly devout among them attempt to capture their targets in a style 
thought to best embarrass and humiliate their targets as much as possible. As mentioned before, Asurin still has a place of veneration among the Chesentan people. In Chesenta, Asurin is regarded as a power associated with storms. In acknowledgement of the Doombringer, some societies, though it is not mentioned where, purposefully ring a gong or bell three times when the verdict of a criminal is given, or at the point of an execution. Despite any stated association between Tyr and the Doombringer, some cultures do make the association. First, Tyr is the one who helps humans create and uphold the law. Then the Doombringer is the one who responds when such laws are broken with the appropriate punishment. Hierarchy and Structure of the Clergy Collectively, the clergy of Hor may be called Doombringers themselves, or Horites. As it is, the Doombringer has few active places of worship operating throughout Faerun. The clergy he does have tend to be constantly on the move as a result. Second edition provides us with the following breakdown of the Doombringer's clergy. Though keep in mind this breakdown uses second edition class options that do not apply to future editions. 40% are clerics, 30% are crusaders, and 30% are specialty priests. Such specialty priests, confusingly, are referred to as Doombringers. Though the term Doombringers went on to describe the clergy, on the whole in later editions. Though a lawfully aligned faith, the faith is not organized. Rather, it is made up of separate factions whose alliances with one another seem in flux. These factions often take issue with one another and engage in their own petty violence. Given how splintered the Doombringer's faith is, the ranks used in the clergy vary considerably. Though the rank structure of those operating in the Heartlands use the following ranks for their clergy in ascending order. Eye of Irony, Hand of Doom, Fist of Vengeance, Claw of Revenge, Fateful Eye of Irony, Fateful Hand of Doom, Fateful Fist of Vengeance, and Fateful Claw of Revenge. Collectively, senior clergy members are known as the Lords of Thunderous Vengeance. I don't know if feminine members also bear the title of Lord as well. The title may be used in a gender-neutral capacity. Responsibilities and Duties of the Faithful As Doombringers travel, they offer prayer on individuals' behalf should that individual be in need of vengeance or think someone may be trying to enact revenge on themselves. Such prayers are paid with a small fee. There would appear to be enough of an issue with charlatans running a scam pretending to be Doombringers since it bared mentioning a couple times in source books. For these charlatans, the Doombringers' justice is not far behind. If moved enough by a particular person or group's need for vengeance, Doombringers may seek to enact a fitting punishment upon a perpetrator. Though Doombringers do their due diligence in verifying the stories of victims before proceeding, which injustices are dealt with personally by Doombringers is at their own whim. That is to say, they are not tasked by their superiors. Simple, small injustices to heinous ones affecting a significant number of people are just as likely to drive a Doombringer to action. This type of vigilante justice does not go over well with local guards, 
governing authorities, and tears faithful. However, the downtrodden of society often take a shine to the actions of doombringers. Orders and Priestly Bodies The Hunters of Vengeance are a band of bounty hunters and vigilantes dedicated to the Doombringer. What type of classes may be found among their number goes unsaid. In any case, they operate in the Heartlands and Northwestern Faerun. Some fear this band, while some others admire them. The Fellowship of Poetic Justices is a group of bards and crusaders both dedicated to the Doombringer and to Tyr. Their goal is to tell the stories of those who met their poetic end or fate and have such stories reach the ears of all across the continent. The hope is that through such stories, people may seek redemption before meeting a deserved fate themselves, or perhaps the stories are enough to convince people to not act with evil intentions at all. Nemeses are a secretive order of the Doombringer's clergy. The Nemeses all have been wronged or someone dear to them was wronged, and then the individuals responsible got away without facing necessary and fitting retribution. This order knows local laws well enough, just they know which ones to ignore and obey in their various pursuits. A nemesis is damn near impossible to stop in their tracks as they go after the respective target. The nemeses practice a particular ritual before pursuing a target. The night before, they hole up somewhere alone for the whole night. They then engage in prayer that features occasional screams at the thought of undealt retribution. When the sun breaks the horizon in the morning, they learn the direction of their quarry and are provided with a vision of their quarry's whereabouts. Allegedly, no distance or magic can mask someone from a nemesis's night ritual. Upon exacting the necessary punishment, a nemesis's task is still not done. To complete the task, they must inform the victim, and if that victim is deceased, speak with the victim via speak with dead. The Sons of Hor were an active secret society during the 3rd edition era of their Forgotten Realms. I found no information to suggest that they are still active. The Sons were resident in Egrilorond and took particular issue with the symbol's rule over that land. This secret society operated primarily in Velprentilar and Furthingholm. Most of their members came from noble, merchant, and landowner families. The goal of the Sons was to displace the symbol and then eventually rule in Eglorond with the influence of strong law and wealth. In truth, the leaders hid behind a veil of revolution and allowed the younger members to idealize and daydream about overthrowing the symbol. In the third edition era of the realms, there were three devoted Asuran assassins called the Three Thunders operating in the Greenfields area who struck out against anyone allying with Mohorand. Appearance and Dress The ceremonial dress of a Doombringer consists of a black tunic over top a low-hanging grey robe. On their hands, they wear black leather gloves. While going after a target, Doombringers wear a surreal mask to hide their identity. Most clergy wear a dark red, silver-bordered sash around their waist. 
Within the sash, they have small keepsakes taken from their past targets. Each clergy member has a curved dagger. Their holy symbol takes the form of a worn piece of jewelry. This outfit Doombringers wear at any chance they get, save when they need to conceal their affiliations while going after a target in the name of the faith. When adventuring, Doombringers are allowed to wear whatever armor or clothing is required to fulfill their given task. They are allowed to wield any weapons of their choosing, but they must carry one piercing type, one blunt type, and one slashing type weapon. If they already know what type or come to be engaged with an enemy, Doombringers are to then wield the weapon that matches the damage type of their opponents. They do this to leave a deeper impression on their opponents and targets if the victor. If able, and death is the deemed punishment, Doombringers are to kill their target with their own weapon. Again, to please the Doombringer and follow his teaching of poetic justice. Nemeses are clearly well-worn travelers. Hair, clothing, and skin show these telltale signs. They are equally experienced in combat, as many sports scars and other lasting injuries. All members of this group are said to have a penetrating stare that can easily read anyone they come across. The Nemeses wear a specific version of the Doombringer's holy symbol. A bronze, two-faced man with each face looking in opposite directions. They are able to use any weapon and armor as they see fit. Rituals Doombringers pray and meditate on their spells at midnight, the time they believe when bells toll for those who are to face justice. The Doombringer's name is invoked often by those who are not able to pursue their own retribution or vengeance. Or vengeance. Often he is invoked in a short spoken prayer or a prayer written down on some parchment. A common belief is that the stronger an item's permanence that bears a prayer to the Doombringer, it is likelier the god will respond. For this reason, prayer may be found etched in metal or stone, then hidden away beneath the ground, or prayers are written in secret diaries. Individual Doombringers are to decide which of their previous acts of revenge speak to them the most then going forward, celebrate those anniversaries as their own individual holy day. Likewise, they are to pick out those situations which have not been avenged as of yet. Those anniversaries are set aside as contemplative holy days, when Doombringers think upon strategies to enact their plans. When Doombringers or others enact appropriate consequences on those deemed necessary, Doombringers are to give praise to Hor either in loud exultation or in quiet depending on the given situation and or environment. Two holy days are celebrated in the Dewbringer's faith. The first is celebrated on the 11th of Alaint. This holy day is called the Penultimate Thunder and it celebrates the Doombringer's victory over Ramon. It is a joyous holy day where games are participated in and bread, fruit, and mead are shared among the faithful. The second holy day is held on the 11th of Marpanoth annually. This day is called the Impending Doom, 
and is far serious and somber in comparison. This day is to remember past actions of just vengeance and those yet to be carried out. The day is marked with the beating of drums, oaths spoken with vigor, and purification rituals that are taxing on the body. General Locations of Places of Worship At Unther's height, its influence was extended into Jacenta, the Shar, and some sections of Dambrath and Estegund. With Unther's spread, came the construction of temples, ziggurats, and other religious structures to venerate the Untheric pantheon. These places of worship now lay abandoned, but perhaps such a place dedicated to a Surin waits to be discovered, or the god himself provides someone with a vision of such a place for a given reason. The Doombringers' places of worship are Spartan almost to a point that some find them disquieting. All are made of stone and built in elevated positions away from prying eyes. Here the faithful can figure out their plans for vengeance and brood in silence, as they are wont to do. Specific Places of Worship As of recording in the second edition era of Forgotten Realms, there were two temples vying to lead the Doombringer's faith. The first was the thunderous Hand of Vengeance found in the Chesenton city-state of Akanax. There the king and the clergy maintained and ran the legal courts in a local watch. The second was the amphitheater of the first thunder found in the city of Murktar within Threskul. This temple doubles as a gladiatorial arena where accuser and accusee resolve their disputes in the arena. It is held that the Doombringer always ensures that each combat resolves in such a way that proper justice is dispensed. The temple proper is found beneath the arena. The Hidden Hand of Fate is a temple dedicated to the Doombringer found in the Archwood in the Dalelands. As the Doombringer's influence began to falter in the Old Empire's region, this temple rose in influence in response. The culture of nearby Arkendale revolves around slights, short-fused tempers, and plotting. As a result, a significant portion of Arkendale's residents have taken to worshipping the Doombringer in secret. This temple are the patrons of assassins, bards, bounty hunters, and vigilantes who operate throughout the surrounding region. Mount Thalbane was formerly a dormant volcano in Threskul. The spell plague caused Mount Threskul to become active once more. Mount Thalbane is thought to be the mountainside home of a Surin. It may be that the ancient vampiric green dragon known as Jax Anandagor, who lives within the mountain, perpetuates this tale by using magic to appear as a Surin. I just want to throw it out there that it may be that the manifestation, that being the proper manifestation of the Mulani gods, resided on this mountainside when the Untheric pantheon still flourished in the ancient past of Faerun. Unnamed temples to the Doombringer can be found on the Dragon Isle, the largest of the Pirate Isles, and within the Thayan city of Azantur. Character Options For 2nd edition, the Doombringer specialty priest can be found in Powers and Pantheons. The Nemesis priest variant can be found in Warriors and Priests of the Realms. This is a breakdown of the features that I think someone deeply involved in the Doombringer's faith as an acolyte or otherwise for a custom background in 5th edition. 
for your two skill proficiencies, two of investigation, perception, or insight. For your language or tool proficiencies, the disguise kit and thieves tools. For your equipment, there's the urban bounty hunters from the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. For your ribbon feature, there is the Acolyte's Shelter of the Faithful from the Player's Handbook, and then the Urban Bounty Hunter's Ear to the Ground, once more found in Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. Next is a list of subclasses that I think would be thematically appropriate for an NPC to have or PC to take if they are a worshipper of the Doombringer. For the Barbarian, there's the Path of the Zealot from Xanthar's Guide to Everything. For the Bard, there's the College of Swords Barge from Xanathar's Guide to Everything. For the Cleric, there's the War Domain Cleric in the Player's Handbook. For the Paladin, there's the Oath of Vengeance from the Player's Handbook. For the Ranger, there's the Hunter from the Player's Handbook and Gloomstalker from Xanathar's Guide to Everything. For the Rogue, there's the Assassin from the Player's Handbook. Finally, for the Sorcerer, there's the Divine Soul Sorcerer from Xanthar's Guide to Everything. Dungeon Master Options To start, this is a list of creatures and humanoids available in 5th edition sources that I think would serve directly or indirectly the Doombringer and his faith. With spellcasters, it is worth your time to change out the spells given in the stat blocks within the book for spells that fit their theme and role in the world. From the Monster Manual, there's the Invisible Stalker, Revenant, Acolyte, Assassin, Priest, and Knight. From Boo's Astral Menagerie from the Spelljammer box set, there's the Fear. From Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus, I would reflavor the Black Gauntlet of Bane. From Volo's Guide to Monsters, there's the Bard, the Bard, Champion, Warlord, and Blackguard or Blaggard. I think both are accepted pronunciations. All those creatures I just mentioned can all be found in Mordenkainen Presents Monsters of the Multiverse with tweak stat blocks. Finally, from Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes, there's the Marut, which can also be found within Monsters of the Multiverse. There are a good number of monsters associated with a Doombringer that don't have 5th edition stat blocks officially. So I'm going to give them some quick overviews. Cursed are humanoids who are cursed to not die. They have ghostly pale skin, eyes that are completely black, and gain dark vision. Cursed lose any magical or psionic capabilities they have. These creatures are immune to enchantment magic and fire, cold, and life drain attacks. Despite being undead, holy water does not do them any harm. Upon being reduced to zero hit points, a cursed lays paralyzed on the ground as they slowly regenerate day after day until they are whole again. Cursed look to battle the spellcaster who originally cursed them with his fate in the hopes that the spellcaster reverses the curse and in turn tries to destroy the opposing cursed. The first edition stat block for curse can be found in Dragon Issue number 30. The second edition stat block can be found in the Shadowdale Adventure module and the Ruins of Undermountain box set. Then the 3rd edition stat block can be found in Monster and Compendium, Monsters of Faerun. A haunt is the spirit of someone who remains restless due to some unresolved quest or task. To begin with, haunts are limited to just a 180-foot radius 
out from where they were killed. From there, a haunt intends to possess another being in order to fulfill their tasks. Haunts may take on one of two forms. The first is a bobbing, floating ball of light that looks much like a will-o'-wisp. The other form is a translucent image of the person's former appearance. Often haunts are mistaken for other forms of non-corporeal undead. If a haunt completes their unfinished goal, they will no longer possess their host. They attack any humanoid indiscriminately, so as to not miss out on any opportunity to possess someone. The first edition stats for haunts can be found in Monster Manual 2. The second edition statistics can be found in Monstrous Manual. A Harla is an invisible creature whose form is roughly the shape of a human. Harlas do not attack in the usual manner. They afflict a target with an overwhelming emotion. There are different types of Harlas associated with different types of emotions. These types include hate, passion, and fear. Harlas search out those who have particular difficulties in containing the emotion that each Harla is then associated with. After a Harla has afflicted someone with an emotion for a short time, that individual is unable to recall that past event. Each Harla has a specific weakness that is related to its specific associated emotion. Harlas can be found in 2nd edition's Monstrous Compendium, Forgotten Realms Appendix. Incarnates are beings formed from the pure energy of a given concept like courage, hope, or wisdom. Justice incarnates are specifically said to be creatures tied to the Doombringer's faith, but there are several other types of incarnates including evil ones. These creatures can be found throughout all the Outer Planes, but of course the good-aligned ones are prevalent in the Upper Planes. Justice Incarnates are a lesser type of incarnate. These creatures will bond with other creatures who are strong in the trait they embody and can confer benefits to the host, while the Incarnates feeds off the emotion put out by the individual. Technically, a bonded Incarnate can control the host against their will, However, this is a tactic utilized almost entirely by evil incarnates. The second edition stat block for incarnates can be found in Planescape Monstrous Compendium Appendix. Living steel usually appear as a humanoid shape made of shining, undulating, at times, steel. This creature gives little off in the way of heat. It is not an aggressive creature, though dangerous if provoked. This creature is immune to several weapons and even some lesser magical weapons as well. Living steel may shape itself into the form of any creature, though its dimensions are constrained by its mass and its silvery sheen makes it stand out. Living steel is immune to electricity. Cold damage is especially effective against living steel. Living steel is asexual and will battle others of its kind to the death. It absorbs and consumes the remains of its defeated opponent. Living steel live mostly in nooks and crannies of rock formations where they reform into their relaxed blob form. The stats for living steel can be found in Monstrous Compendium Annual, Volume 1. Lian and Shi are an undead spirit with vampiric characteristics. They have a desire for entertainers, troubadours and minstrels, bards and the like, who are adept with poetry and have strong charisma. Formerly a woman, be they elf, half-elf, or human, they then brought their own life to an end after their love was not returned from an artistically gifted individual. In their normal state, 
this incorporeal undead is invisible, though it may reveal itself to its victims. Alian and she finds a target and follows that target for roughly a month before making themselves known. During this time, the Alian and she learns what they can. In a moment of solitude, the Alian and she will present itself to the target and attempt to get them to touch her skin. For some reason, when she makes herself visible, the Alian and she has a lesser physical form, but it is enough to be touched. Once touched, and the target fails a saving throw, the target regards the Leon and she as their beloved and any former loves are abandoned. Slowly but surely, the target returns to visit the Leon and she in secret, and there they exchange a singular kiss. From this kiss, the Leon and she regains hit points and steals away one hit point permanently from their target, though the target is totally unaware of this loss. Charm targets will use every means to stop those who are trying to break the hold the Leon and she has over them. The thing is, a Leon and she strangely makes charmed entertainers better at their craft as they hold this creature as a muse, though some of the produced art can seem disconcerting and or sad. The second edition stats for the Leon and she can be found in Monstrous Compendium Forgotten Realms Appendix. The third edition stats can be found in an archived web article whose link is in the episode description. The third edition write-up presents these creatures as fey rather than undead with a different angle and perspective compared to what I have presented here based on their second edition description. Next we'll touch on magic items. The Rod of Generalship is a golden two-foot long rod with many inset rubies, diamonds, and pearls along its length. While this rod is held up during a battle, those under the command of the one holding the rod are granted a bonus to both armor class and attack bonus. This effect may only be used once per day. There are only three such rods in existence. They have been found in the use by the clergies of Anher, Horus Ray, and Asurin. The Rod of Generalship can be found in 2nd edition's Old Empires. The Talons of the Dance Macabre were created by the Chesentin clergy of Asurin. Only eight pairs are known to have been created and may be found in hordes across the continent. The Talons look like eagle's talons, though the talons are plated in a dull silver. Tossing a pair to the ground and saying the necessary command word causes the talons to animate an attack. These talons may only be used once per day. Another command word causes the talons to become inactive. The talons of the Dance Macabre can be found in 2nd edition's Old Empires. Following that are some thematically appropriate magic items from official 5th edition sources I feel the Faith of the Doombringer may have access to. From the Dungeon Master's Guide, The Arrow of Slaying, Javelin of Lightning, Dimensional Shackles, Holy Avenger, Iron Bands of Bolaro, Lantern of Revealing, Medallion of Thoughts, Oathbow, Rod of Alertness, Wand of Binding, Wand of Enemy Detection, Wand of Lightning Bolts. From Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, the Rod of Retribution. From Storm King's Thunder, the Bloodstone. From Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, Lantern of Tracking. From Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, plus one to plus three Amulets of the Devout. 
from Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage, Potion of Watchful Rest. And then finally from Waterdeep Dragon Heist, Ring of Truth Telling. Alright, thank you for listening to Religion in the Realms. If you're interested in keeping up with the release of future episodes, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Realms Religion. These episodes are also uploaded to YouTube as well. Audio versions of the podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Podcasts. If you wish to get in touch with me or have any questions, the email for the podcast is realmsreligion at gmail.com. I forgot to mention in the last episode, which was Talona's episode, I was a guest on the Dungeon Cast podcast with William and Brian to talk ball. William and Brian are acquaintances of mine, and I was quite pleased to be on their show. I have links down in the episode description for that episode. In the next episode, I will be covering Lyra, the chaotic neutral goddess of illusion and deception. Until next time, may Timora look kindly upon your dice rolls, Helm protect you, and Lathander light your path. Music for this episode, Ancient Rite, by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0.